The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. As you sit down, I encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word and open it up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look to verses 23 through 27. Verses 23 through 27 this morning. I know many of you saw the pictures circulating Facebook and even on uh, News for Jacks, I believe, or First Coast News, one of them picked up on it, on the bear uh, that has been around town, uh, going through up near where the kids' place is at, by the red light, down into Brooklyn uh, Lake, and I know some even from the church had posted pictures of this bear. Uh, my brother this morning had another bear on his deer cam out on his property on Immokalee Road. It kind of butts up to Camp Blanding. Uh, there's a large number of black bear around, believe it or not, and we're starting to see a few more as they repopulate our area. Uh, seeing those black bear reminded me of being up in the mountains about a month, month and a half ago with my family, and my kids are finally at the stage where we were able to do more hikes. Uh, for the longest while now, a seven, five, and a three-year-old, we've had a kid two and under that we really weren't able to go very far on any hike or anything because we're carrying them or are pushing a stroller along. This trip, we were finally able to do some short hikes, had a good time. Uh, but on one of those trails, I came across a, a spot that, you know, of course, all along the trails with my two boys, I'm talking about lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and you know, always wanting them to be a little bit scared as we're walking through the woods. Well, we came to a spot that had a little bathroom break, a little uh, outhouse, and one of the kids had to go use the restroom, and so Candace took them, and uh, the other two waited there as I, I uh, went uh, up the trail a little bit. And so, of course, I got a little bit of a distance, went right around the corner where they couldn't see me, and, and what else do I do but buck, uh, duck behind a little tree and a bush on the side of the pathway after getting them all worked up about lions and tigers and bears in the woods. And, of course, it's Hudson that's the first one coming around the corner, leading, leading the pack. And he, he gets right up to where I'm at, had no clue that I was there. And so, of course, what does any good daddy do? <laughs> the look of pure terror on the boy's face. Just that split moment of utter shock and just frozen in fear that turned into darting off as fast as he could in the other direction. If only you could capture that, that moment, a picture of that face that he had when I jumped out, uh, scaring him after just talking about a bear. It's funny when it's a, a joke, when it's something that somebody's pulling a prank like that. Uh, but some of you have been in real life and death situations. Some of you have been in, in real situations where it's not a, a moment of panic that turns to laughter when you realize you've been had. Uh, but it really is fear. It really is panic at a situation that you were facing, even an ongoing situation, where fear, uh, fear can so overwhelm, can so overtake your heart and your soul. It's such a situation that the disciples found themselves in. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Let's read the text this morning. Now when he, that is Jesus, got into a boat... His disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful? 
O you of little faith. Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the seas obey him? I want to give you three lessons from the storm this morning. Three lessons from the storm. The first of which is expect storms even when you are living in obedience to God. I almost could word this, especially when you are living in obedience to God. Expect storms even when you're doing what God has told you to do. Even when you're following the Word of God and you're living how He desires for you to live and your heart is humble before Him and you're seeking His glory and you're seeking to be a, a vessel of, of, of glory for Him, a vessel fit for Him. You're, you're, you're desiring in a real humble heart of worship to do your best for the Lord. Expect, expect storms to come. I don't know if you're like me, but I often do just the opposite. I often like to think that if, I, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then surely God will bless it. Surely God will put a hedge of protection around me. Surely God will safeguard me from the storm. I think we all like to think that way, just naturally, that if we're living for God and we're seeking to please God, then we will earn His favor in the sense of he, He's not going to let any storms come our direction. What do we find here with the disciples? Go back to verse 18, what we looked at last week, verses 18 through 22. And if you remember, if you've been with us, you know where we're picking up. Chapters 5 through 7 contain Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught with such power, such authority, that he left the crowds amazed, astonished. And they said, this, this, this man doesn't teach like any other man. He doesn't teach like the scribes and like the Pharisees. Matthew is showing us that in Christ's teaching, he evidenced that he truly is the Christ. That he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate. And now in chapter 8, Matthew has begun revealing to us miracle after miracle after miracle that the Lord Jesus performed. That he, he healed the man that was stricken with leprosy. Leprosy literally eating away at his flesh, and Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, Be cleansed, and the man was healed there before the, the crowd that had gathered. Then he heals the centurion's servant. Even the, the servant not being present, by the power of his word, he spoke it, and it was so that that man's servant would be healed without him even going to the centurion's house. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of the fever that she was sick with. He healed the demon-possessed and the sick, the many that the crowds had brought to him. And now we get to verse 18, and it says, When Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Because of the mass audience that was, was gathering, Jesus says it's best, it's good for us to get in these boats, and let's head over to the shore over yonder on the other side. We have what we looked at last week, two wannabe disciples in verses 18 through 22 that came to Jesus. And the first one made this rash commitment, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. What did Jesus tell them? Jesus basically said, you don't know what you asked for. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he was warning that disciple about the hardship of what it truly meant to follow Jesus. That it isn't all 
Remember, if you were here, the theology of glory versus the theology of crucifixion of the cross, it's not all glory. It's not all healing and miracles that Jesus is going to Calvary. Jesus is going to give His life a ransom for sinners. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to die upon that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He's warning that disciple, that wannabe disciple, you really don't understand what you're getting involved in. You haven't counted the cost of what it means to truly follow Him. The second disciple, He wanted to follow Jesus, this wannabe disciple, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus had a harsh word, a hard word for him. Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. We look at that and say, my goodness, that's hard. Why would Jesus say such a harsh word to this man? And really, he's elevating the priority of what it really means to follow Jesus, that Jesus and the calling of Christ must be first and foremost, and even the normal and honorable things of life are secondary to the great calling of Christ that he places upon man's life. And so he gives these warnings about what it really means to follow him. And then what we find in verse 23 is, now when he got into the boat, his disciples, what did they do? They, they heard the words that he gave to this first wannabe disciple, the warning of how hard it will be. They heard this word that he gave to the second wannabe disciple of, of what it really meant that you would have to forsake all to follow Jesus as he calls you to it. And it says, what did they do when he got in the boat? They followed him. They, they gave up everything in their lives to pursue this calling of Christ to be a disciple. They were acting in obedience to the command that Jesus had given to get into the boat and go to the other side. You realize the storm that came upon them was not the storm of Jonah that came upon Jonah. Jonah was a man living in disobedience. Jonah was one that was doing the complete opposite of what God had commanded, and so God brought the storm upon him when he was in that ship heading in the opposite direction of Nineveh where he was called to go. And that was a storm brought about because of Jonah's disobedience. This isn't a storm brought about because of the disciples' disobedience. This is the opposite. It's actually a storm that they're facing because of their obedience. Had they disobeyed and stayed upon the shore, they would have been able to take shelter. I don't know if any of you have ever been out on a boat in the middle of the lake when a storm comes up, or been out in the Gulf perhaps when a storm comes up. It can get pretty scary pretty, pretty quickly, pretty unexpectedly. This area, the Sea of Galilee, was notorious for storms coming up like that. And it just so happened that as these disciples with Christ are making their way across the sea, obeying Him, getting all for Him, following Him, it says in verse 24, And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. The disciples were going through this storm because they were following Jesus. The reality is, whether you come to realize this or not, you need to. The reality is, as you set out to follow Christ, you will face great storms in your life. We like to think the opposite. I, as a pastor, like to think the opposite. I have given my life to full-time Christian service. I like to think, surely, if I, if I, I, I serve faithfully. Surely if I follow God's word and I lead my family well and I try to lead this church well and in humility and and in just open honesty before the Lord and a heart set after Him, surely I can avoid the storms of life. We like to think that. 
But what we find evidence over and over and over again in the Word of God through the teaching of God's Word and also the examples set forth in the Word of God is that we should actually expect the opposite. We should actually expect greater persecution in this life because we're following the commands of Jesus. We should actually realize that it's through much tribulation, Paul says, that we must enter the kingdom of God. That it isn't through much much victory and great blessing that we must enter the kingdom of God. We should take the words of Peter to heart in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 where he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened. That we should expect storms in this life. We are still a fallen people. Yes, a repentant, saved people. But nonetheless, there's still a sinful flesh within me. And I still live in a sinful, broken body and a sinful, broken world. And the reality is, this isn't heaven yet. So we like to think it is. We like to think we can make this heaven on earth. And we like to think if we just do what's right. And, and there's even Proverbs that hint to this general truth that if we follow the teaching of God, there are general wisdom proverbs that rightly say, if you do what's right, God usually and normally blesses that. Like there is a prosperity that comes with obeying the commands of God. Why? Because God is creator. God has designed this whole thing, you and me, and he knows what's best. And what is his command is not only best for his glory, but is actually best for us, for human flourishing. And so there is a general principle, a general wisdom that those who do what is right, who are men uh, and women of character, of integrity, who, who honor the Lord, who obey the commands of the Lord, generally speaking, uh, you are better off than if you didn't, because sin has great consequences and brokenness and greater destruction that comes by it. And so I, I like to take that general wisdom principle and apply it universally to my life and think that in my life, if I just keep following God, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't expect hard things to come at me. I know you're not any different than I am. Some of you are here even because you think being here is going to make your life easier and better and healthier and wealthier and greater prosperity, greater success. And the Bible and Jesus and God's Word, again in teaching and example, reminds us over and over and over again that a call to Christ is a hard calling. That we must expect the storms that will come, not because of disobedience, but because of our following Jesus. I was reminded of it this week even. Last week, Sunday after church, uh, all the, uh, us four pastors here at Trinity drove down to Tampa, just north of Tampa, where we had the Florida Baptist Convention. Uh, to be honest with you, the actual business meeting was quite boring, which is a good thing because it wasn't like the circus of the Southern Baptist Convention where there's a lot of stuff that we have to work through, unfortunately. Uh, the Florida Baptist Convention is, is really good right now. I'm thankful to be a Florida Baptist, the heart for the gospel, for Christ. Uh, the unity, the standing upon God's Word. And so the meeting itself was a little boring because not much was happening but the standard approving of everything. But the preaching was really good. We had a lot of preachers that came as a pastor's conference prior to it. But one of the preachers was uh, Dr. Tommy Green. Uh, some of you know Dr. Tommy Green. He was with us uh, a number of months back. Last year, I guess it was. I think this morning he's actually at First Baptist preaching. He'll be here in February preaching. But he is our executive uh, treasurer of the Florida Baptist Convention. He kind of gives leadership to the Florida Baptist Convention uh, as we meet for just two days, and he and uh, um, those that are on staff with him give oversight to uh, all the ministries that we to do together as the Florida Baptist Convention. 
Uh, he's probably in his mid-60s. I think he might be 65. He has faithfully served the Lord his whole life, from a small church to the next church to about four or five churches that he's been at. Uh, the last place he was at was First Baptist uh, Church of Brandon. Um, just done a phenomenal work there for the Lord. He faithfully loved his wife and family. Uh, he served well. And it was hard for me to hear him get up and in tears and in brokenness talk about how the past six months of his life has been the absolute worst and hardest of the entirety of his life. Both, he said, professionally and personally. And some of you have heard a number of months back within the Florida Baptist Convention, there was a cyber phishing attack where a pretty large sum of money was stolen. And FBI has got involved, of course, and there's a Secret Service, branch of the Secret Service that actually investigates all of the cyber um, crimes. Um, thankfully, some insurance has covered some of the loss and the, the ministry that that money was going to shared half the cost as well. And so financially, it's still a great loss, but not as great as it could have been. Uh, but nonetheless, with all of that, the good news is nobody in the association was found at fault uh, any guilt whatsoever of being in, in, um, involved with any of what went down. Uh, but, but Dr. Green, if you know him, he assumes responsibility for all that he oversees. And it has literally just, in the professional sense, tore his heart out in, in the, what, what had occurred. Even though there were protocols and everything we could do to prevent such a thing, it's one of those things where they were just honestly outsmarted and multi-million dollar companies have fallen for the same thing and, and the same thing happened. But he, he bears a burden for that. And he said this has been professionally one of the hardest trials throughout all the church life he, he oversaw that he's ever had to go through. And then you add to that just a few months ago. And he said he got a call about his middle son, 41 years old, that hadn't shown up for work and hadn't checked in. And he knew something wasn't, wasn't right. He drove down to South Florida to check on him and walked in through the house and found him dead on the kitchen floor. He had died of a heart failure, no, no health issues leading up to it. And so, as bad as the professional side would have been having walked through all of that, personally, if you've ever, in, ever walked through that, the, the loss of one of your children, it's something that no parent should ever, ever outlive their child. It ought not to be. It's only because we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world that anybody ever walks through that. I think it might be one of the hardest things I've ever as a pastor, walk through anyone with. Um, and he's walking through it. And I like to think, you know, man, if I live my life right, if I follow the Lord, surely those sort of storms don't help, don't, don't happen to those that are following God. Those things happen to people that are in disobedience. Those things happen to those that are far from God. Those things happen to those that are not serving God faithfully. And we all like to think that if we just do what we should do, we'll be safeguarded from the storms of life. And all over the Word of God, it warns us, no, 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 no. Understand the brokenness of this life and understand the greater reality of what's going on that we're about to get to. That, that in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the storm, God is at work in such a way. God is at work in such a way that isn't apparent in the calm seas. It's only in the stormy seas that we really see the might and the splendor and the wisdom and the strength of God manifested through us on worthy vessels. To trust that God's got a purpose in the midst of it all. But that doesn't make it fun to go through. And this first lesson of wisdom from this storm of, of, of the sea that applies to the storms of life that we face is that we ought not to be caught off guard by it. 
We ought not to think it a strange thing and get so so shocked the moment that we are facing any any anything that's a burden, anything that's a sorrow, anything that's a suffering in this life that we want to give up on God and give up on our faith because we think that God owes us in such a way that we ought not to be going through it. No. No, expect storms even when you are living for God. Job 14.1, man who is born of woman. How many of you are human beings born of a woman in the room this morning? That's all of us, right? Man who is born of woman is few of days. Our lives are short, and those days are full of trouble. Ecclesiastes, so many think of Ecclesiastes as a depressing book. I find great hope in it. <laughs> if you read it rightly, you will. That, that, that Solomon recognizes life under the sun. He defines it as toil under the sun over and over again. Enjoy your toil under the sun, for this is the lot that God has given you. He's actually at work in the midst of the toil. He's not all, always at work in the midst of the blessing and in the prosperity. Those are things that can often blind us from God and lead us away from God. God is glorified in the, the toil. Theology of the cross, not theology. Expect storms even when you are living in obedience to God first. Notice the second lesson. Realize at times it may seem as if God is distant, even though He's really not. There are times, sometimes in the calm, and sometimes in the storm, there are times when the immediate feeling of God's presence is not felt. There are times when it seems as if God has withdrawn Himself. There there are times where it seems as if God is asleep in the midst of the boat while you're going through the worst fear of your entire life. The picture is almost humorous, isn't it? I mean, imagine a couple of boats filled with the disciples of Jesus and, and the storm that comes upon them with the waves that are crashing in. These waves could get very tall. This isn't a little lake. This is a huge, huge body of water. Uh, A great momentum of of water would be moving with the winds. These waves are crashing over the boat. The rain is coming down. The wind is blowing. The, The boats, they know. These are fishermen, some of them. They know these boats won't make it out here. We are about to capsize. We are about to drown in the midst of this sea. And they're panicking. They're filled with fear over this whole thing. And Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. The disciples awake Jesus, and you can hear the fear in their voice. They cry out, verse 25, Save us, for we're we're perishing. We would say, Save us, we're dying! Mark records it this way. They woke Jesus up and they said, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? Can't you see what we're going through right now? There are seasons of life where it seems as if God is unaware of your circumstances. Where it seems as if God is unconcerned. Where it seems as if God is asleep through all that you're going through. The Puritans called it the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul, the season where God's presence feels distant, feels removed. You would say, why is it that God would ever 
lead us to feel that way? Well, the Puritans, one Puritan writer, gave these reading, uh, reasons. Joseph Simon, he said, Sometimes God withdraws His presence in order to reveal the sinfulness and weakness of our nature. In order to reveal the sinfulness and the weakness of our nature, that we truly are nothing without Him. That we aren't strong in and of ourselves to do what He's called us to do, to live like He's called us to live. He says it reveals, God reveals the sinfulness and weakness of our nature, and then also the freeness and necessity of God's grace. I don't know if you're like me, but you live long enough living the Christian life and you can begin to get to a place where you think you've got it figured out and you think you've got it all put together. If you're not careful, pride can begin to creep up in your heart. Spiritual pride. You begin to think you're here right now sitting in that pew because of who you are. Because of your spirituality. Because of your strength. You know, there's sometimes God lets a storm come up in your life. God removes the immediate feeling of His presence, though He will never leave nor forsake you, but He removes that immediate feeling of His presence where it feels as if God is distant. And He does so just to remind you of just how weak you really are without Him. To convict you of the pride that can so often creep up in your heart. And to lead you to recognize and afresh and anew the necessity of His grace, that, that you need Him and His grace and in His mercy to keep you and to sustain you. He corrects you of your pride and your carelessness. Another reason that Joseph Simon wrote. He corrects you of your pride and your carelessness through the withdrawal of a feeling of His presence. Maybe you're in a season of life right now where God seems distant, where you don't have the, the closeness of, of the feeling of God that you have once had in your life. I would encourage you, a little mini-sermon within the sermon, two, two admonitions. One, pray. Pray. Though the disciples had a weak faith, it was a little faith, they had faith enough in the midst of the storm that they knew who to turn to. And they turned to Jesus, and they woke Him up, and they cried out to Christ. But it doesn't say, oh, you have no faith. They had a little faith. Thank the Lord they had enough faith to know where to turn in the midst of their panic, in the midst of their fear. And they turned to, the, uh, to God and they, they poured out their heart before Him. Jesus, don't you see we're perishing? Don't you care? You know, the Psalms are filled with psalmists of little faith. Psalmists, those that wrote the Psalms, pouring out their fear before the Lord tears before God and even asking, asking God, you know, how long will you be far from me? God had never left them nor forsaken them, but they felt like He had. And they turn to the Lord and they cry out to Him in prayer. I would encourage you in the midst of the feeling that God is distant, first pray, and then secondly, stay in the boat. <laughs> stay in the boat. The disciples were at least wise enough in the midst of the storm to know Jesus was in the boat. They didn't bail ship. They didn't jump out. I think that's a temptation sometimes when we feel God is distant. We think, why do I stay in the boat? Why do I even keep a little faith? God has forsaken me. God is distant. God is asleep. I'm going to jump ship. I encourage you sometimes in the midst of the storms of life, if all that you can do Simply stay in the boat and pray. 
Maybe that's what some of you need to do right now. Is stay in the boat. Just keep coming to church. Keep doing what God has called you to do, even though the feelings are not there. And pray and pray and pray. And stay in the boat and pray and wait for God. Remember Christ is with you even when it may seem He is not. Expect storms even when you are living in obedience to God. Secondly, realize at times it may seem as if God is distant even though He's not. And thirdly, lastly now, trust God that His purposes are being fulfilled in the storm just as in the calm. And I would say even they're they're being fulfilled even more so in the storm than they are in the calm. That in the calm, we often again forsake God and we forget God and we're not aware of our need for God. But in the midst of the storm, there is a revelation of God and His strength and His grace and His mercy that is sufficient for our every need. Trust God. Trust God that His purposes are being fulfilled through the storm you're facing. You know, the text doesn't attribute the storm to either God or Satan. Neither are mentioned. You know, I thought maybe in another gospel it might say, and God caused the tempest to come. It doesn't. It just mentions it as a matter of fact. Uh, maybe, Maybe you like to think this is a work of Satan, and it very well could be, that Satan was seeing all that Christ had taught, all that Christ was doing through the miracles. And Satan says, as they're traveling across this lake, I'm going to put an end to them and to Christ. This whole movement is going to end right here. And maybe it was the working of Satan that brought this about, this storm, to sink these boats. Maybe it was purely of God. That God is the one who brought it actively upon them in order to reveal to the disciples just how weak their faith really was and just how great Christ's faith truly was. The reality is, the Bible just puts it a matter of fact, but as we read the other scriptures in the Bible that inform us about the workings of God, what we come to understand is even if it was the work of Satan, it ultimately was the work of God. You read the book of Job? Satan can't do anything that God does not permit. And Satan is so foolish, he thinks he can actually over override the the sovereignty of God by what he's doing. And in the end, ultimately what happens is God uses even what he's doing for his glory and for his people's eternal good. You see it played out in the cross of Christ, don't you? Where Satan thinks he's crucified the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. And little did he know the resurrection was coming. Little did he realize that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the, the eternal redemption of all who turned to Christ was accomplished. God was at work in the midst of that suffering to work a greater eternal glory, a greater eternal good than anyone could have ever imagined, even though God had promised it and prophesied it so many times and in so many different ways beforehand. God's purposes stand, even in the activity of Satan. You know, some people like to give Satan a little too much credit. Some people like to attribute every storm in life to the work of the devil. You got a flat tire. Oh, the devil's just in my vehicle today, and I need to pray the devil away. They sneeze, and all the devil's trying to get me sick. And it's like, do you realize, even if the devil were targeting you specifically, individually, I doubt he is. He probably got more better targets than me or you, but his demons definitely are at work. Uh, Even if it is an activity of Satan, you realize ultimately nothing happens 
No activity of Satan apart from the sovereign hand of God. That there is no storm that will ever come upon your life. That God says, oh my goodness, I never saw that coming. Jesus, get down there and do something before everything falls apart and goes awry. That's not how my God operates. That's not how the God of the Scripture I hold operates. He is a God who is sovereign over us. Jesus understood this truth. He knew the words of Isaiah 45 and verse 7. I form the light and create darkness, God says. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Don't don't miss the irony of the great contrast here between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples are freaking out. They are panicking, and rightly so. They're about to drown in the midst of the sea, in the midst of the storm. They're, They're filled with fear. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is asleep. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. I I wonder, I do, part of me likes to think Jesus is really in the back of the boat with like one eye shut and one eye halfway open. You know, and he's just kind of playing a game with the disciples here, maybe. But but the, the text really reads that Jesus is truly asleep. Now some say... Perhaps he was physically exhausted. He was fully 100% man. He had just delivered all of this great teaching. He had been healing and doing miracles. And in a state of utter, utter exhaustion in that boat, he collapses in sleep. Maybe that is true because he was physically a human being. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it that Matthew is wanting us to read as we see his example contrasted with the panic of the disciples. What we're to see and to ultimately understand is that Jesus had a faith in his Father that allowed him to rest, allowed him even to sleep in the midst of this crazy storm. The disciples are freaking out in panic, and Jesus is at such rest that he is sleeping in the back of the boat in the middle of the storm. It's Jesus who will say these words recorded in Matthew 10, a few chapters from here. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Someone once said if the disciples would have just had a little bit more faith, they could have held on for the ride of their lives. And they could have faced this storm with joy and with the excitement of knowing we'll make it to the other side. The Son of God is with us. God's commanded it. God's willed it to be so. I don't need to fear drowning in the midst of the sea. That was the heart of Christ. That was the mindset. That was the faith of Christ in the midst of this great storm. Paul, Romans 5, said, We also glory in tribulations. Think about that for a moment. We glory in tribulations. We, we, we take pleasure in them because of the purpose of God being fulfilled in them, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. And we read Romans 8.28, and we quote it often, but it's hard to actually believe in the midst of a storm that you're walking through. But we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That's easy to believe intellectually. That's hard to truly cling to experientially when you're in the midst of a boat and the waves are crashing and the wind is blowing and the 
rain is filling it up, and it seems like it's about to capsize, and, and Jesus is with you, and you know it, but He's asleep. You have a faith like Christ in the midst of the storm. I can remember holding my thirdborn, Ainsley, when she was a little baby. It's crazy. Y'all have all warned me how quick they grow. But my kids are seven, five, and three now. Two older boys and then the little girl who's three. But holding her as a baby was different than the first two because there was so much more racket in the house. You know, with the first one, it's just you and your wife and the baby. You can keep it quiet, except for the noise the baby's making, of course. And the second one, you're still, you know, one can hold the baby, one can deal with the other kid. But those of you who've had three or more kids, you know that's when it all falls apart and all crazy breaks out because you're now outnumbered. And even as you've got one baby, then there's two kids left and they're three, almost four, and one and a half at the time. And it was a loud, crazy environment that Ainsley Nora Denmark was born into. I used to be so worried that that girl would not sleep and would be woken up. And I learned very quickly as you held her, it didn't matter what obnoxious noise and chaos was going on around her. If you had her in your arms, she could sleep like a baby. But I knew one thing. The moment you laid that girl down on her bed, Ah! eyes open. Those of you who are parents and you've had kids, you remember those days, right? The moment you lay them down in that crib is the moment that the eyes pop open and they started screaming. But as long as they were in in your arms, there's such a safety and such a security that was felt. They could sleep peacefully. I want to close this morning with verse 27. Jesus confronts them in verse 26. Why are you so fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. By the power of his word, the winds ceased, and the sea was stilled. Verse 27, so the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew is showing us once again, Jesus was more than just a man. Jesus is the one whom the winds and the sea obey His very Word. He is the incarnate Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what storm it is that has come upon you, what weight you carried into this room, what burden it is that's that's heavy upon your heart right now, but I know who is the God of the storm. I know who is over you, and I know who is at work within you if you're a believer. And hear me, you don't need to panic. You shouldn't let your heart get filled with such anxiety such fear. What you need to do is sit and marvel for a moment. Marvel at the power. Marvel at the just might of God, the splendor of God. And then what you need to do is you need to just shut your eyes. Shut your eyes to the the wind and the rain and the craziness of the situation. And you, you lay your head down. You lay your mind down upon the Lord, upon His arm. Shut your eyes, lay your head down, and you know what you ought to do? You ought to, in a sense, just go to sleep. As a newborn child goes to sleep in his parents' arms, as Jesus Christ Himself went to sleep 
midst of this raging storm. Why? How? Because you know the one who holds you. You know he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You know he's at work even in the midst of the storms that you're going through. Let your rest, or let your soul rather, this morning, let your soul rest in the one who holds you and the one who will never let you go. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and we do thank you that you are our sovereign God. That you are at work in all things, good and bad. Lord, the, the victories and blessings of life and the sufferings and agonies and things we would never ever truly want to go through. We know that, Lord, you were God of both the mountain and the valley. Lord, help us to, to see and to realize that you are at work in a greater way even in the storms of life than you are in the calm. Lord, we ought to expect storms as we follow you. You've told us it would be so. It's so easy for us to think if we just follow you, then you're going to guard us from that. Help us to realize this morning you call us to greater things. You call us to eternal glory. And that our sufferings are working for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond compare, Paul says. Lord, it will be worth it someday. It will be worth it even as we look back and see all the ways you use our every suffering to see the bottle even that you have that contains every one of our tears that hasn't been shed. Lord, if there's one in here that needs correction, needs rebuking, needs a soft heart, I pray you would soften it, that you'd open eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, but if there's some in here, as I know there are, who just need a word of comfort, need of encouragement, I pray your spirit would bring that upon their hearts.